All right, so Jesus' family tree, Tamar and Judah. We will read, first of all, from the genealogy of Jesus, which is in Matthew 1 as well as Luke 3. So I will read just these few verses from Matthew 1, and then I'll encourage you to turn to Genesis 38 for the story of Judah and Tamar. So this is how Matthew 1 starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son or son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. In verse 3a there, we get the story that we're going to be exploring today, but it's quite a story. So let's just recap what Matthew has included in here. First of all, God calls Abraham and tells Abraham that he is going to create a people out of Abraham and Sarah, despite being, them being barren. He's going to create a people through whom God is going to bless the world. They will be called the people of Israel, and through them, God will bring salvation for all the nations. They do eventually have a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob and Esau, but Jacob, the younger, gets to carry on the family line. And so then Jacob, with four women, has a total of 12 sons, and Judah is his fourth son through his first wife, Leah. Leah has at least four sons, and Judah is number four. But we read already earlier in the book of Genesis that Judah has become somewhat of a leader among his brothers. He's the one, when they are ganging up against their younger brother, Joseph, who says, let's not kill him. We're not going to gain anything from that. Let's sell him to traders, and we will get the money but we can still get back at our father um, who loves Joseph better. So let us now learn more about Judah from the story in Genesis 38. We're going to read it in two chunks, and so I encourage you to open your Bible if you brought it along or open a Bible app on your phone so that you can follow along. Genesis 38 We'll read the first 14 verses, and I will pray. Holy Spirit, this is quite a story. I pray that we will have ears to hear it well. Bless me, calm my heart as I share what you have helped me prepare. More than anything, Holy Spirit, Help us to see the work that you're doing in our lives. Help us to see the hope that Jesus offers. Amen. So they've just sold Joseph. Joseph is on his way to Egypt. The brothers don't really know what else is going to happen to him. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her 
and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conserved again, conceived again, and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. So we've got Judah going, marrying a Canaanite woman, which we don't even know her name. And then in very quick succession, they have three sons. Judah, very quickly, all three sons grow up, or at least the first son grows up. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his seed on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. Shearing of sheep was a time of celebration, time of harvest, and time of feasting, being together. When Tamar was told, your father is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes. She'd been wearing them all along. She covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. We'll continue reading in a little bit. I don't have any points on my slides today, but I have for the four movements of the message, I've got four pictures which you can take a look at as I'm talking. This one's called Tamar. Tamar is in trouble. She's a Canaanite. She's been married to an Israelite, not of her own people. Her first husband dies because of his wickedness. They've had no children. And being without children in that time and at that place meant that she had no way of participating in the life of the community, the domestic life of raising children and being part of what women did in that time. She also had no one to protect her as she gets old. In that culture, a widow without children was destitute and considered a failure. But she has the right to be the mother of Judah's heir. Judah's firstborn died, but his wife still has the right to produce an heir. So as was common at that time, her father-in-law Judah 
calls on his next son, Onan, to help Tamar bear a child. This was called Leverite marriage, and it was common in the time. It was still practiced in Jesus' day. The next brother would get given to the widow after the first um, man died. But Onan refuses to help out repeatedly, we're told. Tamar's life gets no better, worse even. God is displeased by Onan's failure to help Tamar and ends his life just like his brother's. The remaining son, we're told, Shelah, is not old enough to be given in marriage. And Judah surely does not want his third son to die. He may die too, just like his brothers, we're told, he says to himself. So he tries to get rid of his daughter-in-law. Just go back to your father's house. I'll let you know when Shella is grown up. I'll give him to you. But for now, just basically just get out of here. Hopefully, you'll forget about me. Life will go on. And so Tamar is alone. She's childless. She's not eligible for another marriage. She's vulnerable. Her candle of hope for the future is all but out. Just one little bit of hope. She may not know what Judah has been saying to himself. So once Shella is old enough, perhaps she will be able to bear an heir. But then Tamar discovers the truth. Her mother-in-law passes away. Judah mourns. Shella has grown up. But she's not been invited back into her father-in-law's household. She has not been given in marriage to Shella. Shella may die, too, is what Judah continues to think. He has no intent of fulfilling his promise to her. Judah has broken his promise. He has betrayed Tamar. Can you imagine how Tamar might have felt at that time? Angry, betrayed, hurt, desperate, probably all of the above. And she decides to take matters into her own hands. She's desperate for her own survival, but there's also a sense that she's desperate to do what's right by her dead husband as well. She swings into action to raise up seed for her dead husband. He has the honor of getting an heir to the right of that opportunity. Even though we discover later that her desperate action could lead to the death penalty. Tamar and Judah live in a very different culture than we do. And so this idea of passing the brother off to, or passing the widow off to the next brother is rather foreign. I can't imagine that it happens commonly, certainly not in North America. But it's not so hard, I think, to imagine Tamar's sense of betrayal when Judah fails to live up to his obligation as her father-in-law. Broken promises are not uncommon in our lives. When some promises are broken, the consequences may not be particularly serious. I promise to get some milk on the way home. Okay, we'll drink water 
tonight. I promise I'll empty the dishwasher this afternoon. No? Okay, I'll do it tonight. I promise I'll be home by midnight. Well, you'll be grounded for a couple of days or a week or two. I promise I'll hand in my assignment before the due date. Well, I guess you'll get docked a bit of marks. I promise to turn off my light after this chapter. You'll just be a bit more tired tomorrow. But in other cases, broken promises can have more serious, even heartbreaking consequences. I promise I will be kind to her. I promise we will always be friends. I promise not to have another drink. I promise I will talk to you, not about you, if we have problems. I promise not to look at a website like this again. I promise to love you till death do us part. Small or big, broken promises can wreak havoc in our relationships and in our lives. Like Tamar, we experience others breaking their promises to us, and we can feel irritated, angry, hurt, or desperate and alone. Our candle of hope also threatens to go out. Or we're more like Judah. We may be the ones to betray another's trust. We struggle to live with integrity. We fail to keep our word, and we create messes that sometimes are impossible to clean up we threaten to snuff out hope in others. Let's read the rest of the story. Here's Judah and Tamar. So Judah is on his way to Timnah, and he sees Judah, sees Tamar. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, and he slept with her. I should say it's like he gave her his credit card or his checkbook or his driver's license. He slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, She took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back 
his driver's license and credit card back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out its hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah. And that's the end of Judah and Tamar. We don't hear about Tamar again until the New Testament, Matthew 1. So here's this Canaanite woman, a non-Israelite, desperate and alone, betrayed by one of God's own people. We've just read how she has acted courageously and creatively in order to achieve what Judah refused to help her with, a child. In our culture, I think this story almost sounds normal, the sort of thing we'd find on Netflix. A woman uses deception and sex to get revenge on a man who has betrayed her. A man has casual sex for pleasure. But let's not suggest that the writer of Genesis is elevating these behaviors or promoting them. That is not the grace in this story. Tamar is about to be burned. And it's once it's discovered that Judah is responsible for her pregnancy, then he too is guilty, deserving of death by stoning, according to the book of the law. But death is averted for both. Here's what we can say happens. Despite her deception, God graciously gives Tamar what she has been longing for. Not only one, but two children. And with that, God gives her the inclusion, the sense of stability that she needs in that culture 
to live the rest of her days. And don't forget, these are heirs for Judah also. Judah also gets children from this deception. Tamar also gets a commendation from her father-in-law, who acknowledges that she is more righteous than I. Judah admits that he has not been playing fair. Tamar has fought for the justice she, he was unwilling to provide. We see later in the story of Joseph, you can read it in Genesis 43 and 44, that Judah also grows through this experience. He becomes more mature, more willing to advocate for his father, for his youngest brother, Benjamin, in the story of Joseph that continues after this chapter. So Tamar receives the grace of children. She receives the grace of commendation and at least a bit of respect. Judah receives children and the grace of deepening maturity. But there's more grace. When we look at God's big story, God decides to include Tamar and Judah in Jesus' family tree. There is a direct biological connection between this desperate Canaanite widow and Jesus between this cowardly, unfaithful son of Jacob and Jesus. The grace of being included in God's family and God's plan of salvation, despite their brokenness. This grace is for all of us, too whether we feel like the one betrayed by broken promises or whether we feel like more like the betrayer, the one who is breaking promises. Because God in his love invites us into his family. See what love God lavishes upon us, that we should be called children of God. How do we become children of God? Through Jesus, the descendant of Tamar, the descendant of Judah. Way back in the Garden of Eden, even before Abraham, God promises the first betrayers, Adam and Eve, that he will right what was made wrong. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And because God is the ultimate promise keeper, no betrayal there. He keeps his promise, this promise. That offspring is Jesus, born to crush Satan's head, to destroy evil and death, to heal what is broken, and to reconcile all betrayers and betrayed to God through his blood. Through Jesus, the offspring of Adam and Eve, the offspring of Tamar and Judah, the offspring of Mary and Joseph. 
Listen to what the gospel writer John says about Jesus. Here is the way that we become children of God. It says that God, Jesus, the light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. May the beauty and solidity of this promise give all of us hope today. Let's pray. God of Tamar, God of Judah, God of all of us who break promises and who are hurt by broken promises. We rest in your grace today. Give us hope and give us courage to live as you invite us to.